141. All four verses. Pay attention to the lyrics. Pay attention to the words as you sing these words. Our Savior, who was the man of sorrows, is now returned from the fight, victorious. And every knee to him shall bow. Second, and we're going to take our Bibles to Second Timothy, chapter three, for our Bible study tonight. All right. When you find Second Timothy, chapter three, you may have a seat. Second Timothy, chapter three. Now, I have a question to ask you. Here's the question. Is the scriptures enough? Is the scripture enough? Is the scripture enough for your salvation? And is it enough for your sanctification? That is my question. Okay? All right, you may have a seat. Thank you. Now, come to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's read the verse. And then I will try to teach about the scriptures. Actually, they are sufficient for salvation and for our sanctification, our growth, our progress as a Christian. We have the Bible. But before that, you have to be saved. And your salvation, your personal salvation, is the Bible enough to give you the information, the truth about how to be saved? Well, I'm going to say yes. And you probably would agree with me too. And so for the sake of those who may be watching, and maybe for those who have some questions about that, I want to tell you that the Bible is sufficient. It is enough. You don't need anything more to know about salvation and about sanctification. And here's a good reason why. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, not unfamiliar verses. Very well known verses actually. I think this, these verses are learned very soon when a Christian is, um, a new Christian is uh, introduced into a local church and uh, growing, has a Bible. I think very soon he is told that the Bible is the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.15 tells us this. 
and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make, oh no, the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So verse 15, 16, and 17 tells us right away that the two questions are already answered. It is enough to make one wise unto salvation. It is enough to thoroughly, to thoroughly, to completely make a Christian grow and mature to be like Christ. So let's look at some verses about that tonight. So we begin with the, with the bias that the Bible is the Word of God, that it is perfect, it is without error, and that it is what we need to know to be born again, first of all. So it is sufficient for salvation. Uh, the Bible reveals the truth progressively. Progressively. So I say that to explain that not all at once, but gradually God reveals truth especially about personal salvation and the work of Christ. So in the Old Testament, this is the Old Testament right here, in the Old Testament, you have a lot of things written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and a lot of the stories and really exciting events that has taken place, a lot of them are pictures of what Christ should do over here. A lot of things that Christ, uh, a lot of things about Christ are foreshadowed, are typified, are presented ahead of time here in the Old Testament and then when the New Testament takes place when Christ comes and does his finished work on the cross we look back we say oh that reminds me of something back over here oh that reminds everybody go ah oh. no just kidding but uh, we're reminded about things that happened over here let's look at some of the things that happened over here and then try to see a connection from here to over here okay all right Everyone following? I hope so. Uh, shadows and types. Types. Types are what we call typology. Uh, this is something that is not connected to something, but it represents something. An event, a person, a sacrifice, these symbolize something that actually Christ would fulfill over here. And so sometimes it's an animal. Sometimes it's what happened with Israel that points to Jesus over here. And so an event that symbolizes something else, and according to 1 Peter 3, uh, it is a figure or a type of the real. If you, if you had a lamp, well, here's a lamp right here. Here's a very fancy lamp from Goodwill. It sheds light on this table. Uh, let's see, okay, now, here is an object right here. This is the table, and this is the light shining here. What object can I put here? Let's put, um, um, let's put something here. Let's put a glass. Let's put a, let's put a, um, something solid. What can I put here? Something solid with light hits it and casts a shadow. Let's put a, I know what, let's put a, Let's put a um, stack of Hershey candy bars. Yes, yeah, so I'll stand it up like that. So this is a stack of Hershey, a Hershey candy bar. Now the light hits it and casts a shadow. Now this is the Old Testament, and this is the New Testament. The shadow, the shadow says there's something solid here. The shadow says there's something real. The shadow is not the real, but it is saying that there is something real because the real is casting a shadow in the Old Testament. We'll look at some verses here in the Old Testament that points to the real. And so really this should be like this. The cross is right here, the real, and it casts a shadow in the Old Testament. So that's what I'm going to try to say tonight and try to explain tonight. First of all, there is a, there are several types and symbols of the Old Testament that points to the cross of Christ. Uh, first of all, let's look at one. Uh, this is... Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. There is really nothing new under the sun. There's really not anything new that you can learn in church. It may not be familiar to you. It may not be something you've heard for a while. But really, 
if you go through the Bible, you're familiar with some of these things. Genesis chapter 4, we have a type, we have a symbol of what salvation is in the New Testament. And in Genesis chapter 4, we have post-Garden of Eden. We're outside the Garden of Eden. Man has fallen. He's fallen because of sin. And now they are outside of the Garden. And they are no longer privileged to be in paradise. Genesis chapter 4, verse number 1. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain wrought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Now that process of time could have been many, many years. Now they are, I'm going to guess, now they're adults. And they're able to bring their own sacrifice. Now watch carefully, verse number 4. And Abel, he also brought of the first things of his flock, and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain... But unto Cain, and to his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very happy, and his countenance was full of smiles. Oh no, when God told Cain, I don't accept your offering, I don't accept your sacrifice, Cain was very upset. He was offended. He was very offended. Well, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Now look at verse 6. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why... Why art thou wroth? Uh, in other words, why are you mad? What are you upset about? Why should you be upset? And why is thy countenance fallen? Verse 7. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. Now, if you look at these verses, you will find out that probably Cain and Abel, they both knew what kind of a sacrifice to bring. Now, how would they have known what sacrifice to bring that would please God? Well, did they have parents? Yes, they had parents. Cain and Abel, they probably witnessed, before they could understand what's going on, their parents bringing a sacrifice to give to God. They probably saw them picking the best lamb from the flock, <coughs> from the herd, and then cutting his throat and shedding his blood in a little in a bowl, and then offering it to God. They probably saw that, and they probably were told by their parents, "This is why we're doing this. This is why we're not getting the best fruits, the best crop to give to God as a sacrifice." Because when we're in the Garden of Eden, remember this, children, boys, remember this: we sinned against God, and God killed an animal to cover our nakedness. God didn't give us leaves. God didn't give us uh, things like that from the garden. He gave us the skin of an animal. And so this is why we give God a blood sacrifice because that's what he required. And so they grew up probably seeing that before they could understand, before they could talk. And as they continued growing, they probably were told, they began to ask questions. And you can just imagine in their life, in their home, that they knew exactly what kind of sacrifice to bring. It was not a secret. So when the Lord scolded, the Lord scolded and rebuked Cain He's really telling him, you know what I required. If you just brought what you were told to bring, that your parents brought, that pleased me, I'd accept your sacrifice too. I accepted your brother's sacrifice because he brought the right sacrifice. And so, what is all this about? This is about God revealing to them, through their parents, what kind of a sacrifice was required to please God. And it was up to the boys and the parents to actually bring the right kind of sacrifice. Free will, free choice. You do you do what you know is the right thing to do. And so one boy, Abel did that. The other boy, Cain, did not. And so he was rejected. Now there's less to learn about that. There's less to learn. God revealed what to bring. Their duty was to bring what God would accept. And so when Cain did not, then he was rejected. When Abel brought the right sacrifice, Abel was accepted because his sacrifice was accepted. That goes to the New Testament. When you think about the death of Christ, his sacrifice, uh, the Father required a blood sacrifice to atone for mankind's sins. And it was all by believing, by believing, by trusting, by faith. Ephesians 2 and 9 
is the New Testament counterpart verse. Abel brought a right sacrifice, believing that his parents were telling the truth. Cain brought the wrong one, because not because he didn't know better, but because he just turned his back on what his parents told him, and just totally rejected what the truth was, and did his own kind of sacrifice, did his own thing. He said, I'm going to do what I, th what I think is the right thing to do. I think I'm a pretty good farmer. I'm going to bring what I believe is the best kind of fruit I can raise and grow, and I'll give it to God. I'll give him my best effort, and then he'll accept that. The problem was this. That's not what God wanted. So in the New Testament, you have a verse like this, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I'm pretty sure that you folks know this. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God, not of works, not of works, not of works, lest any man should boast. So a man's own thinking says, I'll believe in God and I'll have my religion. I will do my good works, plus have faith. And God says, way back up here, after your, the, the first parents were turned out from the garden, they knew to bring a right kind of sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. They just had to believe and do what I said. I would accept them. Cain had all kind of things going on in his head, all kind of reasoning, all kind of bad logic. And he said, I don't see why we have to have blood. Uh, uh, why can't I just... And his logic, his reasoning, his human thinking caused him to bring the wrong sacrifice, which led to his rejection. It's by grace, it's by faith. So that is a type of salvation by faith, Cain and Abel. It's a type of religion is not accepted for salvation. That's the first one. Here's another one. Here's another. This is well known. This one, I'll just draw it like this because, um, and it's not really how it looked. But I'll just do this to say, for the, the sake of the image. A three-story structure that would float. It probably was like a, a big coffin. Uh, Ken Ham has a really interesting arc in Kentucky. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, but maybe one day I'll get to drive down and go into the ark. But the ark of Noah, in Genesis chapter 6, if you turn a couple of pages to your right, Genesis chapter 6, here is the second type, the second symbol of a truth. And the point is, the Bible is sufficient to explain to us how a man can be saved. Genesis chapter 6, the background for the ark, you may remember, is that the world in its large population by this time had turned and lived their own way. They had rejected any revelation that God gave to them. And look at verse number one. It came to pass. Time moves on. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And he repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Now you find here the background of the cause for the worldwide flood. And it was a worldwide flood, not a local flood. It was a universal flood. And the flood came because of these reasons. Now in verse number 7, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I had created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and creeping thing, fowls of the air. For it repented me that I have made them. Look at verse 13. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And verse 17. Come to verse 17. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. You can't destroy all flesh in a local, local flood. But you can destroy all flesh in a universal worldwide flood because there's no, there's no place to, to go to higher ground. There's no 
sanctuary, everything is going to be wiped up by water. Wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything, everything that is in earth shall die. So here you have the cause of the flood. You have man's wickedness. And in verses 7, 13 and, uh, 7, 13 and 17, man deserves to be punished. God himself says, I will destroy man because of his sin, his wickedness. But then, look at verse number 8. In spite of the fact that God saw the horrible sins that people were committing, look at verse number 8. But, that's the second time tonight we've seen the word but. But, Noah found grace. However, even though man deserved to be punished and destroyed, he says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And because of God's grace, look at verse 14. Because of God's grace, in spite of the deserved punishment and chastisement for sin, verse 14, make thee an ark of gopher wood, and so on. So you have God. Uh, this is a picture now of personal salvation in the New Testament. Remember, the Bible is sufficient for personal salvation. Containing the Bible in the Old Testament into the New Testament, you have enough scripture material to know that you need to be saved and you can be saved. So in the ark, punishment once again was deserved. But yet again, there is grace and there is mercy and God provides an ark and he would use the hands of Noah and his sons and others, whoever the others would be, to help build an ark. That's another interesting thought. Who helped build the ark? Who do you think helped build the ark? Noah had three sons and they had uh, he had three daughters-in-law. That's six. There's no one missing. That's eight. Who else do you think helped build the ark? You ever think about things like this? It took 120 years to build the ark. You ever cut down a tree? You ever try to cut it into boards with handmade tools, with, 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 without any power tools? You know how hard that is to cut down a tree without any power tools, without a chainsaw? And then to... I mean, it's just an incredible job. I wonder who else helped Noah build the ark. That's for another day. Maybe in the springtime when it's thawed out. Now, you have this story. Look at chapter, chapter uh, 6, verse number 18 again. Although he said that he would destroy the whole world, look at verse 18. But with thee, but with thee. Do you know what but with thee really means in this account that is true? He said, I would destroy all flesh. That means all flesh. Now, exception. But. But with thee. In other words, all flesh would die, Noah. But not you. But not you. There was an exception. In the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. What is the exception to the wages of sin is death? But with thee, those who have trusted in Christ, that's the exception. But with those who trust in Christ, there is no second death. So in verse number 18, But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. Verse 19, And every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark. They too is an exception. They will not die. They will be spared the judgment by water. And so, files of every kind. Next verse, verse number 20. And then, in verse number... In, come to 7, chapter 7, verse number 17. Chapter 7, verse number 17. The exception to death is those like Noah and his family. They were the exceptions to the death. The word by flood. In chapter 7 of Genesis verse number 17 and the flood was 40 days upon the earth and the waters increased and bare up the ark and was lifted up above the earth now so the ark uh, well here's the ark again this is the ark this is the water the ark was borne up the water took it up. It did not submerge. It was above. Obviously, then those who were in the ark were saved from the flood of water and so on. 
The only ones that were saved from destruction were those who were in the ark. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This is a very good verse to connect to the ark of Noah. Romans chapter 8. Noah was invited to come into the ark. Romans 8, verse number 1. The ark is a type, a picture, a shadow of what Jesus Christ would do. And in Romans 8, verse number 1, it says this. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to them which are in, in Christ Jesus. So I could write this word here. If you're in the ark, if, if you're in Christ, there's no judgment for you. There's no hell for you if you're in Christ. And so Noah's ark is a picture, a type. Is the scripture sufficient for a person to say, oh yeah, because in the Old Testament itself, it shows that if you're in Christ, you are not condemned. That's good news. That's good. Also, um, if you can go back one more time to Genesis chapter 7, I would like you to see this verse as well. Genesis chapter 7. I did use the word invited. And here's where it comes from. Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7 and verse number 1. And the Lord said unto Noah. By the way, God spoke to people in the early days of human history. In the early days of the Bible. He spoke in an audible voice like I am speaking to you. And the Lord said unto Noah. Nowadays, how does God speak to us nowadays? Does he speak to you like I'm speaking to you now? Does he speak to you like he spoke to Noah? Be careful not to believe that you need to hear an audible voice from God for, for you to think that God is speaking to you. God speaks to you primarily through the Bible. He speaks to your head, yes, speaks to your heart, speaks to a, through a still small voice. He speaks through Scripture because the Scripture is sufficient for personal self. You don't need to find signs and wonders and miraculous things to convince you. Now, it says in verse number 1, chapter 7, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come! Come, thou and all thy house, into the ark. Come, thou and all thy house, into the ark. That's an invitation. Now, do you know that in the New Testament, Jesus gave an invitation? Did you know he gave an invitation? What verse would I go to to find that Jesus gave an invitation to the people? His people, the Jewish nation. He actually said that word come. Come to Matthew chapter 11. This is such a good verse to connect us to the Old Testament. And it is so because the Bible is sufficient for salvation. Matthew chapter 11. This is a good verse for you to see. Matthew chapter 11. Verse number 28. Such a good verse to take us back to the Old Testament. To take us back to Genesis chapter 7. Come thou and thy family. Genesis, uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse number 20, it says, Jesus is saying this, Come unto me, come unto me. Just like Genesis 7, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavenly, and I will give you something. I'll give you rest. Verse 28, Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me. I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. So you will find the real rest that a person needs spiritual rest of his soul when he comes to Christ. The Lord says, come. It's a good thing the Lord still is saying, come. It's a good thing he has not said, okay, I'm done with giving out invitation. Now, in Noah's time, there was a stop. There was a period of, you know what, it's over. After 120 years, that's all, that's all, that's all. No more opportunities to come. Once the door is shut, when God shut the door of the ark, when that ark was shut, then that's it. You cannot get into the ark even if you try to with the blowtorch. You cannot get in with the battering ram. You cannot get in with modern tools. You're out of it. You are not allowed to come in because the time of invitation is over. But thank God now it is still open. Now here's one more I'd like to just think about with you. And we will not go to the references, but this is Numbers 21. 
Uh, let's go there. Let's go there. Numbers 21. Numbers 21. Remember, the Bible is sufficient for personal salvation. The Old Testament gives us pictures, stories, symbols about what Christ would come and do in the New Testament. You need the Bible. You need the Bible. It's sufficient for personal salvation. Numbers 21. Numbers 21. Verse 4. And they, the Hebrew nation, journeyed from Mount Hor, by the way of the Red Sea, to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people were much, was much discouraged because of the way. Difficult, difficult walking. Every imaginable inconvenience was there for two million people. And you can see them, you can hear them complaining because so hot, so tired, no water, no food. Oh, it's so, it's so difficult. Why are we even here? And the complaining went on. Look at verse 5. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Isn't it funny how people, when things don't go their way, the first thing they do is do what they did. They speak against God and against Moses. They complain to God and they, about God not being fair. And they complain about Moses, God's leader of the people, of not being fair or not being good, and so on, so on, so on. It happens so often. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. Verse 6, And the Lord sent, in response to their complaining, their murmuring, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Poisonous, poisonous snakes. Therefore, verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. You know what Moses did in that verse? And Moses said, and Moses did, what did Moses... Was Moses guilty of them having a hardship traveling? No. Was Moses the, at fault for what the terrain was like? No. None of his doing. And yet, Moses, who was falsely accused of not caring, Moses who was falsely accused of being a tyrant, perhaps, or a dictator. Come on, let's go. We've got to go another mile. Come on, let's go before it gets dark. He just drove them. They complained about him. Moses did this, even though the people were against him unjustly. Moses, what did he do? Moses prayed for the murmuring people. doesn't say that, but you know that they did in verse 5. He prayed for the people. You know what Moses is called in the Bible? A very meek man, the meekest man of all. Yet he was a very manly man. Um, he got mad when people were acting up and complaining against God and against him. And so he's a very normal man, but he was a very meek man, very compassionate man, really. And so he prayed for the people. He interceded for them. Now look at verse number 8. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent. Now, the Lord responded to Moses' prayer. Moses, I, I'm wondering, if he had not prayed for the people... Would God have provided a remedy for the, the snake bite bitten people? Well, interesting thought. And sit it upon a pole, and he shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass, if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Do you understand and appreciate what happened here? Everyone was snake bitten, they deserve to get bitten by a snake because they had sinned against God. Moses, help. Moses, help. Moses says, I'm going to pray for you. God, please help these people. They're just, oh, Lord, you know what they're like. Lord says, I know. I made them. And um, Moses says, they're asking for mercy. Can you give mercy? Moses, Moses says, what are you going to do? Build, get your pole, and get some, get some brass, form it into the shape of a serpent, wrap around the pole, put it on a hill, and uh, dig a hole, and put it on a hill so everybody can see it. 
Tell the people, look at this brazen serpent on a pole, and if they look at it, that shows faith. And if they believe what you say, that I told you to do this, and if they believe me, they'll look by faith, and when they look at this serpent, they'll be healed of their snake bite. The poison venom will go out of their system right away like that. If they believe, they'll look. If they don't believe that, they won't look. And so the song that we have in our hymn book is look and live. Look and live. If they look, you will live. That's faith. What is this all about? This is about the scripture in the Old Testament saying that this event of the brazen serpent is a picture of Jesus Christ on the cross where you look by faith and you'll be healed of your snake bite. Now, the healing that takes place in the New Testament is not physical. It is spiritual. And so when you're born again, you're healed of your sins. You don't have any snake bites, so-called. The, the, the sting of death, this, uh, this, the sting of death, the sting of, what I'm trying to say, First Corinthians 15, the sting of death is, death is the consequence of sin. But when you look to Christ, you don't face that consequence. There is no eternal lake of fire for you anymore because you have been cleansed by faith. So that's another example of that. Uh, Moses prayed for the people and you realize that Jesus Christ interceded for the people too when he's on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The Lord is most very forgiving of those who crucified him. Now, one more in the Old Testament. I have three to give to you. This is my third one. This is from Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 is a very exciting chapter. Spend some time reading Exodus chapter 12 and you will see what an exciting chapter this is because it is a picture, a symbol of New Testament salvation in Christ. Exodus chapter 12. Now, you know the story, no need to go back to the ten plagues. But Moses warned Pharaoh of the tenth plague, which would be the death of the firstborn. He gives instruction to bring a male lamb for each household without blemish. Because that male lamb without blemish will picture the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God. That's really important. Sacrifice the animal, get the blood, put it on the doorpost. So this is the door. Of the house. Get the blood right over here. I think I have red. Yes, I do have red. Get a bunch of hyssop, like a little um, weed, kind of a brushy kind of bush. And dip that hyssop right over here. Dip it right over here and right over here. And that blood will run down over here, run down over here. And that night at midnight, when the death angel comes from Egypt, if the angel sees the blood, he will he'll come here and he will just go like that. He will pass over. He'll pass over that house. That house is protected from the firstborn being killed in Exodus chapter 12. It's a great picture of the cross of Christ. There is no condemnation of them are in Christ Jesus. If this, if this was symbolic of anything, it is symbolic of the protection you have in Christ. You don't die and go to hell. You might die physically, of course, but you won't go to hell eternally because you have been protected. Judgment will not come over you in the form of going to the lake of fire. You're protected because of the blood of Christ. And so that's what Exodus chapter 12 talks about. Now, is the Bible sufficient for personal salvation? Yes. Now, when you read tracts, when you read tracts, read books, when you hear people preach, you hear a Bible study of some sort, if they are telling you something that confirms what the Bible says, then that helps you to understand the gospel. If someone who teaches, someone who preaches, someone who has a video on YouTube, if someone who writes things, if they say something contrary to the Bible, if they try to make the Bible exciting by embellishing the, the truth and making things that are not true uh, uh, to be truth, then you better be careful not to swallow that because the Bible itself is sufficient for 
our salvation and for our growth. Uh, things can be helpful, but it should not add new teaching or add something to the truth that's already revealed. And so we never try to teach things through our tracts or literature or any other form about something that will embellish or add to what the Bible says already. And But if it reinforces it, I'm all for that. It has to reinforce the truth. Now, when we compare and contrast, we're comparing something to this. When we contrast something, a truth said, we're comparing it to this. All the exciting things about uh, Cain and Abel, the brazen serpent, the, the Passover, that's here in the Old Testament. We see over here, oh, that's about Jesus. It's tied together. The, the technical, the, the word that we use in modern times is linked. Computer lingo, it's linked. It's linked together. It's all tied together because it is. Because the Bible is sufficient for personal salvation. But wait, there's more. There's something else. You got five minutes? You got ten minutes? Ten and a half? Okay, good. Now come to the New Testament. Come to the New Testament. To the book of Acts chapter 17. We'll finish up in this chapter on the point is the Bible sufficient enough for personal salvation and our sanctification and our growth? Yes. Now, here's an example of how the Apostle Paul really believed that the Bible is sufficient to explain, to contrast truth from error, to show what God wants, to show how they can be saved. He uses the Bible. Acts chapter 17, verse number uh, 1. And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was the synagogue of the Jews. Now, they had traveled by foot, if they had gone by foot, at least uh, three days walking, which is a pretty good walk in sandals. I just tried on some, some walking shoes. I'm going to return it because it doesn't feel too comfortable. It feels kind of heavy. And so can you imagine walking three days? Well, it was no big deal for them. It's just customary. They're used to that. Look at verses 2 and 3. And Paul, as his manner was, this is his habit, as his manner was. It's a good habit. Habits can be bad or good. This is a good habit. As his manner was, went in unto them, to the synagogue. He went where Jewish men went. He assembled on the day that they assembled on the Sabbath. And he was there in a religious setting so that he could be there to hear what was being taught. And whenever they had any questions, who has a question? Anyone got something to add to what the scripture reading was? You know what Paul would do? Paul would say, I'm glad you asked. I have a question. That's what he did. That was his manner. Um, uh, these folk have visited from the Boston area. They're on vacation. But they have a manner about them. They have a way about them. It's their custom. It's their habit to go to church. Back home, I'm sure they go to church more than once a week. It's their habit. It's a good habit. Paul had a good habit, and he went to where people, Jewish men were, so he can give them the gospel and take them from what scripture reading they were given in the discussion. Now look at the next verse, verse number two, uh, verse number two. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them. Number one, he reasoned with them out of the scriptures, because the scripture is sufficient for salvation and sanctification. Verse three. Opening and alleging. He reasoned with them. He's opening and alleging. He's taking advantage of an opportunity to have a discussion with them. He's opening and alleging. He's not accusing anybody of anything. He's just saying, all right, now you said this. Now what does this mean? Because this scripture, and he's going back and forth. And he's trying to bridge the Old Testament to the New Testament. Bridge the Old Testament to, to point to Jesus Christ as, as it was intended. He's opening and alleging. And he wants to win the argument. Not arguing as in, I'm going to win the argument, I'm going to have a champion. No, no. Win the argument in the sense of persuading, persuading religious men to believe that the Messiah has come. Persuade religious men who believe the Old Testament that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. He's trying to persuade them. Opening and legend. He's making an effort to tactfully, carefully, like a lawyer, explain to them why it is reasonable to believe in Christ. 
Also, look at verse number four. And some of them believed. You know why they believed? They believed because Paul appealed to the scripture and explained the truth from scripture that they were reading. The scripture is sufficient. Look at verse four again. Some of them believed and consulted Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, chief women, not a few. Verse five, but the Jews, trouble, I, I, I need to show this to you, but the chief Jews, which believed not, they believed in religious freedom. They believed in, believe what you want. No, moved with envy. They were envious because Paul had some converts that they could not convert. They were envious. Look, uh, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort and gathered, what a description of people, lewd fellows of the baser sort. What a description of people. You heard about that bad crowd? Don't hang around the bad, wrong crowd. Don't hang around the wrong crowd, boys, girls, when you grow up. Don't hang around the bad crowd. Well, this crowd's bad. These are people that were called lewd fellows of the baser sort. They are the worst of the worst. Anything for money, they would do. And they did. Gathered a company and set all the city in an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Let me keep reading, and I'll explain. And when they found them not, they drew Zacian and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, saying, or crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason had received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. You know, you know what they did here? They did the same thing that they did before. They got religious, no, no, they got civic leaders, mayors, councilmen. They got the government all upset saying, you know these guys, you know what they're preaching over here? Have you ever heard them preach? They are telling stuff about the government that the government should be overthrown. They're trying to overthrow our government. That's what they're talking about here. And they cause a stir among the political leaders. Now the political leaders could not care less, Rome could not care less about what people believe. They didn't care. They just cared that when there's trouble and uproar, a riot, Caesar's going to find out. He's going to send down some garrisons and put the put the, the riot down. And that doesn't look good for us here in this town. That's what they cared about. They could care less about how wrong these lewd fellows were to accuse and to do these things to get a riot going on uh, because they rejected the gospel. Now watch this. That's what's going on. And in verse number 8, the trouble of the people... Look at verse 9. And when they had taken security of Jason. What does that mean? They had taken security of Jason. And of the other, they let them go. Okay, so they grabbed the people. They apprehended these troublemakers, these seditious people. But something happened where they let them go. You know what Jason did? They had taken security of Jason. You know what happened here? Jason says, look. Um, look. Um, uh, you know what? I promise you, I promise you, you're not going to have a problem with us anymore. Look, he pulled out his wallet. He says, look, I'm going to give you this money. I'll give you all this money. Look, if we ever cause trouble again, you keep the money. So I'm giving you this money to tell you I'll do my part to keep everything quiet. We're not going to make trouble anymore. And that appeased these city councilmen and the mayor and so on. They said, well, the guy's free. See, he, will, he will take care of this. We don't have to worry about this thing. He, we'll keep the money if uh, that's the deal. And so he gave them security. That's what happened over here. Well, he was innocent of all that, of course. But I want you to come to the real point. So far, so far, in the synagogue in um, uh, Thessalonica, Paul went to the Jews. Now, Paul goes to another place, to Berea. Verse 10. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming, coming thither went unto the synagogue of Jews. Once again, a habit, a good habit. Verse 11, these, these men at Berea, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, where Paul just came from, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. Now, what is going on here? Here's what's going on. Paul goes from town to town, does the same, same old thing, the same good thing. 
bridging from the Old Testament to the New Testament to the resurrection of Christ and how you should believe in Him, put your faith in Him, not in the religious system that our forefathers were into. And now he goes to Berea, preaches the same thing, teaches the same gospel, and the people had a different response to him. All readiness of mind. Why? Because these people, these Christians in Thessalonica, they studied the scriptures daily, and they knew that when Paul was teaching them, he was connecting the truth. And they said, yes, yes. You know what it's like when you hear the truth? You hear the truth and you go, that's right. Inside you say, that's right, that's true, that's true. You, you just, that's, that's what they were doing. Readiness of mind because they were students of the Bible. And so when Paul gave the truth from the Bible, they said, oh, this is so good. And people believed. Now, what you have here so far is you have open-minded people because they had a readiness of mind. They were biblically literate. They knew what the Bible said. There's nothing worse than a biblically illiterate church. Meaning church people, saved people. They're in church, but they're not growing in church. And it's not necessarily the fault of the pulpit. There's different factors in play, but a lot of times people show up at church and they're just in church. But nothing is processing here. Nothing is going on in here. They're, they're doing their duty by staying in church, which is good but because you hope that they will get something real and, and learn to live for the Lord. But they're in church, fulfilling their duty, fulfilling their hour. It's another appointment to keep. I'll keep my appointment. I'm out of here. And nothing happened here. Nothing happened here. But they were in church. That's a very tragic condition for a Christian to be in. But these Christians, they were students of the word. And they knew what the Bible said. And they could, they could sniff out false teaching. Now, the other day, we had, two weeks ago, I bought milk from Costco. We all bought milk from Costco. And then... If the, if the expiration date is the 15th of January, this last batch of milk that I got, I was going to eat it with my cereal. Or was it with my candy or chocolate or something? But you got to have milk, right, with, with cereal and, and chocolate or brownie. And I opened the, the I took up the lid and I smelled it. And it didn't smell right. Smelling, I looked at the date, the 15th. It was only the 13th. Wait a minute. And then my wife said, look at the, the lip of the plastic jug. It's got some black stuff on it. And then she said, oh, look over here. Now this is the second gallon container that's had uh, milk smell bad before the expiration date. I said, I ain't gonna drink that. I had my, that much left of milk in the gallon. I said, I'm not gonna drink that milk. So I took it back to Costco, thinking, hey, they ain't gonna take this. They said, the guy said, oh yeah, this is the second one people brought in. Ay, 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 caramba. Oh no, the second one, but this is the second one I got from Costco that was bad before this time. I sniffed it because my nose is good. My nose, my, my, my smelling ability is real good. I can smell it. I can smell it. I can smell bad milk. You know what, you know what the apostles, you know what the apostle Paul was like? You know what these Bereans were like? They could smell bad doctrine. That's bad doctrine. That does smell good. That's wrong. Um, when people don't have good nose, a good nose to smell things, <laughs> yeah, sense of smell, they're gonna they're gonna accept, they're gonna drink something that's not good for them. They're gonna drink bad milk. There are people in our life today that are very popular. They're giving people bad milk, and people are not even smelling it. They say, "Oh yeah, this is good." <sighs> that thing smells like sour milk and. They drink that thing. Why are you doing that? Because they don't believe the scripture is sufficient. Let me cite some examples for you to help you see clearly how important it is to sniff out false doctrine or bad practices because you have a sensitive nose for the truth. If you believe the Bible is sufficient, you don't need to have things embellished or you don't need to stretch things to make, people, make it appealing to people. Um, what about women preachers? Women preachers. A lot of women preachers in this world. A lot of Southern Baptists have women preachers. 
I think Rick Warren just last year in, uh, ordained three women pastors. Last year. Rick Warren is a Southern Baptist. I wouldn't say he's an evil guy. I'm not saying he's an immoral guy. I probably think he's a decent man, okay? But as far as as far as the the going against the scripture and ordaining women to be pastors, preach to men, there's something doesn't smell right. And what about this famous man down in Houston, Texas? Have you seen him interviewed by people over the last few years? This is old news now, so I'll just skip this word pretty quickly. But if you were interviewing Joel Osteen, we would ask him much harder questions. If the Berins were interviewing Joel, uh, Joel, Joel Osteen, they would ask much harder questions than what's ever asked by, by um, what's his face? Um, Larry King. Yeah. They wouldn't even do this. And so what do you think about this, Joel? Are Mormons Christian? What do you think about this, Joel? Are homosexuals Christians? Will they go to heaven? No, they wouldn't even do that. If the Berins are questioning him, they'd be even more tough than that. Because they were concerned about the scriptures being sufficient for salvation and sanctification. And when you have someone 99.9% of the time telling 30,000 people on a Sunday that God is for you and He's for you and your dreams, no matter what the dreams are. Whatever you want to become, He is for you. Uh, today is your best life. You can have your best life now. You know our best life is not now. You realize that? Your best life is not now. I mean, is this our best life now? Is not heaven better than this life now? I mean, there's a lot of good things in this life now. God gives us all things richly to enjoy, but He doesn't want us to think that my life is in this world. The best life is not now. The Egyptians, the Egyptians had a good life as far as a lot of culture and food and different things. When the Hebrews were there for all those decades and centuries, they get kind of used to that. When they came back out, when they, when they came, not back, when they came out through the Red Sea into the wilderness, you know what they complained about? Oh, I wish we were back in Egypt for the, the onions and the leeks and the garlic and all this. They longed for what they had back in Egypt. What was wrong with them? They thought that was their best life. That was not their best life. God has so much more for them. Now we have a better life. It's called heaven. It doesn't mean we forget about material and practical things. No, 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 no. It doesn't mean you can enjoy nothing. You can, but that's not your best life. And so when Joel Osteen says to people, you can have your best life now, it is so deceptive. It is so sour milk. It is so sour milk. There's much more to life than just now. And so it's not about being happy. And all, all he preaches about is about being happy. There's more to being happy in this life. Now, the Christian life is a good life. That's for sure. Okay? Don't misunderstand. Don't take this wrong. Don't wear sackcloth and ash. Don't wear dark, drabby colors. No, 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 no. But... Happiness is a byproduct of obedience to God. And when you obey God, you have happiness as a byproduct. If you try to be happy and you try to force happiness uh, away from the Bible and away from, you force it, you force it, you might get that, but it's going to be about that long. It's going to last about that much. And it's going to fall apart again. And you have to do something even bigger and better. Go to a more exciting party. Uh, travel to more exotic places and, and buy more of these newest things to be happy. It's never going to make you happy. Happiness is a byproduct of obeying what God says. So, the Bible is what you need to go by. The Bible is what we go by because this is sufficient for our salvation and for our sanctification, for our growth. Let me finish with this. In Galatians 1, 8, um, Paul says that false teachers are, are cursed and they're condemned. The word is damned. Because they give a false gospel. How do you know it's a false gospel? Because they go against the sufficiency of what the Bible says. They're adding to it. And so, I just want you to know tonight that the Scriptures is the most important book. Whether you have it on your phone or a hard copy in your possession, the main thing is that you believe and you understand intellectually that this Bible is sufficient for how to be saved and how to grow as a Christian. 
and this is the this is this is the vitamin B. This is the multivitamins. This is the, whatever you call. How how can you describe this? It's, um, it's not just a supplement, but this is your life source. Uh, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And that is your life source. So it's worth the effort to make time each day. It's worth the effort to make time to be in church. It's worth the effort to make time to meditate upon the scriptures because this is your life. This is a life-giving book. Jesus said this, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life in John chapter 6. So this book is more than just information or knowledge or inspiration. This is God's word. And you are part flesh and spiritual. You take care of your flesh by eating food, having drink. You take care of your soul and your spirit by feeding on this book. Uh, today, we had the prayers of going to someone's citizenship celebration. We didn't go to the ceremony, couldn't get in, but we went to the restaurant to have a lunch and to honor this person who became a United States citizen. It's a big deal. And the food is Chinese food. Now, I'm Chinese, but I'm not. I like Americanized Chinese food. This Chinese food is real Chinese food. It was real. Uh, it was, some of it was really good. And then they had dessert at the end. Let me describe for you. And take, keep in mind, I, we do, a, my wife and I appreciate it being there. We were honored to be there. They had a couple of bowls of this dessert. Hilda, it was like jello, but it wasn't. It was clear. And they used a spoon to dig it up like that. And it dripped down like that. It looked like a jellyfish. A clear, translucent jellyfish without the tentacles coming down. And I looked at that, and the big lazy Susan's coming around. Oh, have some, have some. I said, I'm full. I'm full. I can't have that. <laughs> you tried because the, now she's got courage. We visited our son in China one year, and she tried eating donkey. Have you ever ate donkey? Horse. <laughs> you have? When I was young. Oh, you were? No. <laughs> okay. Well, in this Chinese restaurant in Beijing, what is that? Oh, that's donkey. You know what? She said, oh, I'll try. She said, I'll try. <laughs> and she did. She said, oh, it tastes like, um, I said, hee haw. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, it's, it's just a cultural thing, you know. But um, uh, when it comes to spiritual truth, the Bible is sufficient, ladies and gentlemen. Go by that. Compare and contrast so-called truth with this. Be like a Berean. And go by what the truth says. Because the truth is all the truth. It never changes. Watch this. I'm done. I'm finished. Watch this. Let me use the red one. Watch this. Truth is always the truth. Okay? No matter where you live, no matter when you live, no matter whatever. Truth is truth. Watch this now. Okay? Watch. Are you watching? Watch this. Tomorrow, you do the same thing. In 50 years, it'll still fall. You know why? Because this thing called the gravitational pull will still pull things down no matter who does it. The truth is the truth. This book is sufficient for salvation and our sanctification. That's why this book must be taught and preached every time we're in church. It must be explained. It must it must be, go, we must go through it, see what God says about different things, because that is the truth. Um, one more thing. One more thing. One more thing. Today is a very unusual day, meaning this year or this last 15 years, because people today have gone so far from the Bible that they think you can be a woman because you think you're a woman. Because you identify as a man, you are a man, but you're really a biological woman. You know what they have gone against? In the beginning, God made them male and female. Not whatever you say you are. It's such a crazy, but more than crazy, we are living in a very unbiblical time. People do not know what truth is, therefore they make up their own truth. I saw a guy with a beard. He's a guy. He says, he says he's a woman. 
Got a beard, facial hair. He says he's a woman. He's got makeup on. He says he's a woman. No, no. I would say to him, no, sir. No, sir. I wouldn't say no, ma'am, because you are a sir. No, sir. No, sir. You're not a... You, you, you think you are. You, you, you might try to appear to be one, but you're not one. You, are, you were not born that way. See? And so this is the kind of time which we live, and people under pressure are afraid to... No, no, no. There's too much at stake, money-wise and otherwise. And so when people get away from the Bible, from the sufficiency of the scriptures, all of these wild, crazy notions become popular. But it's still wrong. Still wrong. Still will fall like that, okay? Any questions? Well, if you had a question, I have no time for an answer. I am sorry. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We appreciate so much that it is truthful, honest, and forthright. It never changes. And what you said was true 100 years ago is true today. And we need to just be wise and not try to fit in so much that we compromise what the Bible says and compromise truth. So, Lord, help the Bible to be real to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.